This is the KOTO Community Radio News for Wednesday, January 19th. I'm Julia Caulfield. In today's headlines, San Miguel mask mandate continues, contentiously, putting the ride in Friday, Capital Conversation talks partisan divides, and a mountain weather forecast. San Miguel County will continue forward with a mask mandate through the end of February. People should be able to go to schools and be able to um, learn safely. People should be able to go to the grocery store, um, to the post office, to these essential services and have the same level of protection. That's San Miguel County Public Health Director Grace Franklin speaking at a county commissioner's meeting on Wednesday. The order was originally set to expire at the end of January. While the mandate will continue, Franklin suggests reevaluating on a biweekly basis. We've come such a long way since um, March 2020, and I, I think it's easy to get lost in where we are today, but we really have made huge strides um, and are in a lot better place. And I have a lot of hope that moving into the spring, we're going to be um, able to move forward and um, shift our mindset a bit. She notes that while she does recommend maintaining the mask mandate, San Miguel County is heading in a better direction when it comes to COVID cases. We're starting to hit towards um, a better path here. Currently, there are roughly 130 active COVID cases in the county. Which is still tremendously high. Um, but compared to the last few weeks of being in the three and four hundreds, it's, um, it's a good sign. The Board of County Commissioners agree with Franklin's recommendation, although, as Commissioner Lance Waring notes, it's not without deep thought. I've been agonizing over this. I've listened and thought a lot about it with a lot of people in the community. I've, as have all the commissioners, had uh, a lot of email, a lot of phone calls, and um, I agree with your request for continuation of the mask mandate uh, with the check-in dates that you specified. However, during public comment, the majority of the community was not in line with Franklin or the board's decision to extend the mandate. Only one member of the community, out of nearly 10 providing comment, showed support. Commissioners note they received a number of written public comment both in support and opposition to the mandate. For Carrie Andrew, director of the Lone Cone Library in Norwood, she's concerned that by maintaining a mask mandate, she's not able to adequately serve her community. The compliance level is so low that the um, those of us who are still trying to enforce it are, are really um, facing more uh, controversy than we would like, than, than is comfortable. And it's coming to a point where, you know, it's been two years as a library director that I, and I may get emotional because this upsets me. It's been two years that I have been unable to serve 50% of my community because I require a mask in my building. Erica braun Lapsis says aside from her opinions on the efficacy of masks, she's worried about the state of democracy in the county. You are elected officials. You work for us. And I know that we're a laughing stock around um, other counties because of these nonsense policies. And I call them nonsense because they're not making sense. So from a standpoint of who we are as a people and our ability to make our own decisions, I do not see how elected officials are able to make those decisions for us with any kind of sense. 
And so for me, it's more a question of what, where do we hit government overreach? And I believe we're there. County Commissioner Chris Holstrom says she hears and respects the passion from the community, but notes public health's task to protect the health and well-being of the whole community, physically, mentally, and economically. We've worked really hard to achieve a balance. We all want to see everybody's faces as soon as possible. Um, so, so I totally understand your um, your opinion and your and your emotion. Um, I think we all want to. Um, get there. Uh, we just cannot, in my opinion, as as the Board of Health and as public health, we can't um, ignore that st- statutory uh, requirement uh, of us as a board. San Miguel County's indoor mask mandate is set to continue through the end of February. Public health will assess and reevaluate the order at its meetings on February 2nd and 16th with the ability to repeal the mandate early if warranted. The Friday night ride festival show in Town Park is back. The town of Telluride's Parks and Recreation Commission approved the extra evening performance for the July 2022 Rock and Roll Festival at their meeting on Wednesday. The evening show is in addition to full days of music on Saturday and Sunday. Prior to the vote, Parks and Recreation Director Stephanie Jacquet explained the festival is a major event with a maximum of 9,000 people per day. But she adds the festival expects closer to 8,000. The Ride Festival has varied in terms of their actual attendance over the years. So the average from 2012 to 2019 is about 5,500 people per day for this festival. The change means the campground will be taken over by the festival one day earlier than they have in the past. They historically have had a maximum of 1,200 campers split between the main campground and Bear Creek Zone 1. And then they would traditionally move in on Friday, although they're being requested, they're requesting to move in on Thursday morning to be in advance of the Friday show. While the Saturday and Sunday shows have a curfew extension, Jacquet notes there is no extension for the Friday show. So music would run from 7 p.m. to 10 p.m. A similar request for an additional Friday evening concert was approved in 2019 by the commission. That year, the festival went over its Friday curfew by 16 minutes. In 2020, the commission denied the request for a Friday show, but town council ultimately approved it, though the 2020 festival was eventually canceled because of the pandemic. Noise has also been a community concern in the past. The 2022 approval includes noise management requirements. The sound for the entire duration of the major festival event will be managed appropriately to address neighborhood complaints and concerns, and that Telluride Productions will turn down the volume of the music upon direction by either the, either the town manager and or the Telluride Parks and Recreation Director. Festival promoter Todd Creel adds the ride team heard the concerns about volume loud and clear. And so we are going to be implementing our own Dolby, you know, our, our own decibel standards. But we're also comfortable with, you know, working with the town manager and with Stephanie. And if there's a problem, we're going to be containing it in the park. We don't want a lot of spillover. I mean, it's a live show, but we want to minimize the impacts more than we ever have. Even though the Friday evening show would just be a few hours, Creel says the additional night of music is vital to the weekend. Just really enables us to put on kind of a more viable event with three headliners and people traveling as far as they do. 
the commission approved the request with little discussion. One of the only comments came from commission member Teddy Errico, who floated the idea of approving the additional night of music beyond just 2022. Do we need to discuss making this a three-day event in perpetuity so we don't go through this movie all the time? Creel says that would be helpful, though he adds he has no intention of doing a full day of music on future Fridays, just an evening show. The commission is interested in discussing that longer-term approval at a later date, once they have a chance to review how this year goes. The 10th annual Ride Festival will rock Telluride Friday, July 8th through Sunday, July 10th, 2022. Colorado's state legislature is off to a more partisan start than typical. This week on Capital Conversation, KOTO's State House reporter Scott Franz shares where the party lines are falling. Scott, thanks for taking a couple minutes to chat with me today. Hey, my pleasure, Julia. The General Assembly has been in session for almost a week now. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, what the first day back was like? Yes, yeah, so things are back in full swing here. You know, definitely still a little strange at times. They have a new rapid testing station at the front of the Capitol, um, so the pandemic is still very top of mind. But, um what I noticed this year in this session is, is things kind of reverted to uh, partisan battles kind of right off the bat. Usually opening day, there's a lot of, you know, olive branches being extended, vows for everyone to to work together for a common cause. And, and those were still in the speeches. Um, but new this year, like immediately after the, the opening day traditions and, and speeches and calls for unity, Several members, I mean, more than a dozen members of the Republican caucus held a a press conference, um, which they hadn't done in years past, to unveil kind of their vision for the session. But a lot of it was, you know, attacking Democrats, blaming them for inflation, rising costs. So that was a little, that was new. You know, this is my fourth session, and I hadn't really seen, um, you know, that kind of political battle start off so quickly. I think a lot of it is attributable to the fact that, you know, we are kicking off um, a big election year. You just mentioned, obviously, it's an election year. And also, Democrats have control of both chambers and the governor's mansion. So does it feel like when Republicans are making those statements, is it they are actually proposing uh, legislation that they intend to really try and get through? Or is it more of maybe political posturing preparing for the election coming up? I, I think it's a, it's a mix. There are some bills that appear to be uh, more political statements. For example, there's there's a bill coming that tries to get around some of the, the vaccine requirements and passports we see in some of the bigger metro counties right now, like Denver, for example. Um, Republicans have a bill that would essentially say that anyone who has contracted COVID um, you know, we'll go on to have the same rights to enter any business, regardless of vaccine passports, as someone who is vaccinated. Um, you know, so that that's an example of a policy that likely won't get traction in a chamber still controlled by by Democrats, but um, you know, is more of a perhaps a, a statement against um, you know vaccine requirements from Republicans. Um, you know, on the other hand, there are several. Republican bills that are centered around 
um, improving the economy, things like letting people deduct their rent payments from their income tax. So, yeah, it'll be an interesting dynamic to, to work on. But, but right now, I think it's more setting up, you know, what argument or case they're going to run on, you know, from the governor's race you know, down to state health races. Well, so those are um, some of the, the issues that Republicans are looking at. As we mentioned, Democrats are in control of the legislature this year. What are some of the things that you're hearing from them that are maybe bills that they intend to introduce within the next few days or weeks? Yes, yeah, so starting, you know, with Governor Polis on down to state lawmakers, I mean, they, the Democratic message right now is, is you know, we want to uh, save you money. This is their line and, and theme uh, for this session. And, you know, so far we've seen a glimpse into some of the things they're thinking. Um, you know, some of it starts with, you know, eliminating fees for starting a new business. One proposal from Polis that's, that's grabbing some headlines early on um, is to delay this plan to raise the fees on gas. So right now everyone's kind of framing it as we want to try and, you know, bridge this economic recovery, which we know continues to be uneven, you know, meaning people um, with higher incomes have, have done much better throughout the pandemic than still people with, with lower incomes. Um, and I think we'll, we'll continue to see policies around, you know, health insurance, um, kind of those day-to-day items that, uh, um, that people deal with. Scott, thank you so much for taking a couple minutes to chat with me today. Hey, my pleasure, Julia. Thank you. That was KOTO's Scott Franz reporting from Denver. It may not be just COVID going around town this season. While the pandemic has taken up a lot of the virus oxygen, the common cold and flu are still abounding. To combat the nasty viruses, the Wilkinson Public Library is hosting an herbal immune support event. The library notes while an herbal remedy can't take the place of medical advice or getting vaccinated, it doesn't hurt to give your body a, quote, gentle plant-based boost. The event will feature an evening of making organic creations to support individual wellness. The library will provide all the supplies needed. Each attendee will go home with two herbal tisanes and a fire cider. The Herbal Immune Support event will take place at the library from 5.30 to 7 p.m. on Friday, January 21st. Registration is required and available at telluridelibrary.org. Telluride has done it again, for better or worse. Outside Magazine recently named Telluride as one of the top 24 mountain towns in the U.S., Telluride came in third, with the magazine noting it's not just, quote, some manufactured ski resort, but an actual community. Telluride is the top Colorado town on the list, coming in behind Jackson, Wyoming at second, and Park City, Utah, taking the top spot. The only other Colorado locale to make the list is Durango at number 19. 
The new year has brought plenty of snow to the mountain west, pushing snowpack totals above average across most of the region. KUNC's Alex Hager has more. Snow is especially piling up where it matters, in the mountains of western Colorado and Wyoming. When that snow melts in the spring, it turns into water that supplies much of the Colorado River Basin. But because dry conditions have lingered for a long time, all that snow hasn't been enough to erase months of drought, which is particularly severe in portions of Utah, Nevada, and New Mexico. The weeks ahead aren't likely to bring much relief, with 10-day forecasts showing warm and dry conditions for much of the region. I'm Alex Hager. Secretary of State Jenna Griswold is suing to stop Mesa County Clerk Tina Peters from overseeing this year's election. The lawsuit is the latest chapter of a legal battle that began last fall when Griswold accused Peters of letting an outsider gain access to sensitive data on voting machines. A judge blocked Peters from overseeing last year's election because of that breach. Griswold says Peters should not regain her election powers this year because she will not accept a list of security demands, including having video surveillance of voting equipment. Instead, Griswold wants a court to appoint someone else to carry out the job. Peters has not publicly responded to the latest lawsuit, but she has been critical of Griswold's investigation and denies any wrongdoing. As climate change becomes more front and center across the world, communities are looking to transition away from fossil fuels. This winter, KOTO is partnering with stations in the Rocky Mountain Community Radio Coalition to report a series of stories looking at that shift. Today, we're heading to the desert. Coal-producing Emory County is one of the only regions in Utah to have seen a drop in population in the last decade. And those that remain have lost good-paying jobs as the state transitions away from coal. A new research facility wants to bring back revenue and jobs by experimenting with a number of new technologies. KZMU's Justin Higginbottom looks at one of those projects, a type of nuclear reactor some think could be the future of power. It's the 1950s, the beginning of the Cold War, and American scientists have just developed an incredible new technology something that could bring the world endless energy. So basically, nuclear energy is simply splitting uranium atoms to make heat, which then goes into heating up water, which then goes into creating steam, which then generates electricity via a turbine. And that's how we've conventionally done it for decades. That's Dr. Matthew Memmott. He's an expert in nuclear power and professor at Brigham Young University. And he explains that there are downsides to this technology. Solid fuel rods heat up during the reaction. If they aren't cooled down, it's a problem. This is what we refer to as a meltdown scenario. Then there's the waste. You have radioactive leftovers from the process, including some really heavy elements. Those last or are radioactive for 300,000 plus years. But this way to generate nuclear power using solid fuel rods isn't the only way. Molten salt reactors for the production of electrical power were studied at Oak Ridge National Laboratory from 1957 to 1960. That clip is from a 1969 film produced by Oak Ridge National Laboratory in Tennessee. And there, they had a different approach to nuclear energy. The molten salt fuel for this reactor is radically different from that used in solid fuel reactors. Instead of using solid fuel rods, the lab dissolved uranium directly into liquid salt. This was thought to be safer. 
there's no such thing as a meltdown accident anymore because you don't have solid fuel that can melt. Rather, it's dissolved in the salt. It's already liquid. You also get less of that dangerous radioactive waste, like plutonium. And what's left, the fission products, they're all floating in this salt. And it turns out the fission products are quite valuable, some of them. Like gold, platinum, and molybdenum-99. That's used in medical imaging and worth about $30 million a gram, according to Mehmet. So what does this have to do with coal-producing Emory County, Utah? Population 10,000. The region has lost a lot as Utah transitions away from coal. Our attitude can't be, well, thanks Emory County, thanks Carbon County, thanks Sevier County, you've been great. We're just going to move on from you. We have to have the mindset of what can we do to ensure that your way of life can be maintained. That's Tom Carter. He's the director of the Governor's Office of Energy Development. And his department, along with Emory County commissioners, have a bet to help the region transition. In Orangeville, just down the street from two coal-fired power plants set to close in the coming decades, is the San Rafael Research Center. It's a space to test new technology, like molten salt nuclear reactors. And so by doing research in these communities, it allows us to better understand what is best for them and not be driven by political winds, but to help identify good technology, the access of time, and be driven by the markets so that everybody wins. The project could in time bring revenue from energy and medical isotopes, and it could bring jobs. It's received a state grant of $7 million, and the governor's office has applied for federal funds. Right now, the research space is being used for just that, research. But the thought is that focusing research here will give the community a leg up in applying the technology. So that when we get through the first hurdles to say, here's the fundamental research, now let's go to the demonstration scale. Now, now let's build a, a big plant. If you're participating in the beginning, it's easier to be participating at the end. And ultimately, we'd love to see those demonstrations come to Utah. That's Andrew Fry. He's an engineer and consultant at San Rafael. It's unclear if large numbers of new jobs will ever materialize, but so far, the center has hired locals. We employ former miners and other people already who are doing the grunt work on the research down there, and they're excellent at it because they know how to run big equipment. Emory County isn't the only place looking at this long-ignored nuclear technology. Canada's funding research and scientists in China are testing commercial-scale designs. But there are huge obstacles. This type of reactor has never been proven to work on a large scale, and it will take billions in investment. A report last year by the group Union of Concerned Scientists questions the reactor's relative safety. That report says there will still be potentially dangerous radioactive waste from the fission process to consider. But Dr. Mehmet, who founded a company to develop this technology, says he's optimistic, although perhaps a little biased. It, it could easily and quickly shift to being the dominant form of electricity production because of the fact that there's no emissions, there's no waste, you're making valuable things, and it's cheaper than everything else. There are some in Emory County who hope that if molten salt nuclear reactors are the future, then that future includes them. For Rocky Mountain Community Radio, I'm Justin Higginbottom. The National Weather Service forecast for the western San Juans calls for partly cloudy skies tonight with a low around 15 degrees. Thursday should be sunny during the day and mostly cloudy at night with a high in the mid-30s and a low around 20. Friday, there is a 70% chance of snow showers with a high around freezing. Friday night, there's a 50% chance of snow showers with a low around 15 degrees. This has been the news for Wednesday, January 19th. 
Thanks for listening. If you have a story idea or a news tip, call the news team at 970-728-3206. And now, personal commentaries. Attention Kodo listeners. Mountain Sprouts Preschool is having a fundraiser. From Tuesday, February 1st at 5 p.m. to Saturday, February 5th at 5 p.m., you can bid on a variety of items to help support Telluride Kids at the Mountain Sprouts online silent auction. Items include local staycations, gift cards, yoga passes, and much more. Our grand prize is a three-night stay at Coro Sun Resort in Fiji. So log on to www.32auctions.com slash MSP 2022. That's M as in mountain, S as in sprouts, P as in preschool 2022 to place your bids. Cash donations will also be accepted. Thank you so much for your support. Hello, Kodo listeners. It's Sarah Holbrook here, the executive director of the Pinhead Institute. I have some crazy science stories for you, and then I'll catch you up a little bit on the Pinhead news that's going on. First of all, you all may be aware that there was an underwater volcano off of Tonga that's in the South Pacific. All sorts of crazy things happened. Um, First of all, um, the eruption lasted only about 10 minutes, uh, but satellite sensors in the days that followed measured about 400,000 tons of sulfur dioxide reaching the stratosphere. I think it went up um, about 20 miles into the atmosphere, which is pretty high up there. Um, and it had the most extraordinary shock wave that's ever been detected. Um, the wave reached far beyond the stratosphere, stratosphere as high up as 60 miles up and propagated around the world at more than 600 miles an hour. The last time there was a uh, volcano this big or bigger, it lasted longer and it actually cooled the Earth's uh, temperature for a while of up to one degree. Um, And this one, because it didn't last as long, may not have the same cooling effect, unfortunately. Um, If you live or ski in Telluride, you'll notice we haven't had much of a winter and it turns out that 2021 is the hottest year on record. So that's a little bit of a bummer. Um, But there's good news also in the scientific community. There was a large scale study of almost 200,000 cross-country skiers. You guessed it in Sweden. Um, And it showed that being physically active halves the risk of developing clinical anxiety over time. That means that if you have this kind of physical activity, it doesn't have to be cross-country skiing. It's just that this was a study of 200,000 cross-country skiers. It halves the amount of clinical anxiety these people have over time, um, which I think is pretty amazing. Well, here in town, um, Pinhead is running science programs for kids all day and after school. You may know that um, in the public school and in the mountain school here in Telluride, um, the students are offered ski PE uh, during this season. Um, And Pinhead is offering a science and active uh, class to a bunch of different Elementary, intermediate, and high schoolers, the high schoolers, in fact, are learning bike repair, which is pretty exciting. Um, And we're also running a bunch of after-school classes as well. And I myself, you might be asking, what is Sarah up to? Well, I've been meeting all the 32 interns that we've accepted into the program for this summer. Um, And I'm excited to hear what they're interested in. 
Uh, and I have to say, every year there's a couple of trends. Some years it's astrophysics or um, aerospace engineering or chemistry. This year it seems to be engineering is taking the top spot in terms of what the um, high school interns are interested in. Well, you can find out more at any time by checking out our Facebook page or signing up for our emails at pinheadinstitute.org. And thank you for your time. Opinions broadcast over KOTO are those of the speakers. You are also invited to express your views after the news or on access each weekday at around 4 p.m. If you would like to comment, please contact a staff person here at Cuddo. We encourage you to speak out on important public issues. 